I want all of us to make more money. So in some ways, this comes very naturally just true to my personality, um, that entrepreneurial spirit we were talking about before. We're taught in music school, in some ways, this altruistic way. And like our art exists because it's inherently valuable. And that's a real disservice to musicians, to your point, Drew, of like, it's not inherently that inherently valuable doesn't pay the bills. We project this idea of like, you need our art, you need it in your life. And the reality is, I, I, no, I don't think so because people invest in what they're, what they want in their life. And so instead to flip that, and, and this is the advice I give a lot to come with the attitude of, no, I need you for my art to exist. I need you for my art to exist. And the more people who believe that, like the better and the more we can serve more people, which is really the, then achieving the original mission anyways. Welcome everybody to the Faking Notes, Notes. Podcast. Podcast, 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 podcast. <laughs> Woo, baby. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Trevor. Mm. I love me some holidays. Mm-hmm. It means uh, no school, because <laughs> <And then> <laughs> you know we're we're both uh, school children. Yeah. <laughs> so school's out, ladies and gentlemen. We're having a conversation mm. with CEO of Changing the Narrative, Aubrey Bergauer, and let me tell you, this is a boss. Aubrey is best known for her work with the California Symphony, where she took a program that was struggling financially in a position that had developed over 30 years. And in just five, she flipped it and turned it all around. She increased ticket sales by 97%. Subscriber base grew by 46%. Concerts were added to support the audience demand because it kept growing and individual giving increased by 52% with nearly four times as many donors than were previously uh, giving to the organization. So she is an A1 badass who understands what orchestras need to do to scale and evolve into the 21st century. Absolutely incredible. I'm so excited we were able to have her come through. When I think of innovation and change and keeping around classical music and growing it in the future, I think of Aubrey. She's been there. She's done it. She is boots on the ground making change. What Drew just described, that is not easy. And that is not the norm, <laughs> turning around and becoming <laughs> profitable. And what I love that she did was she then set out to do this consultant work, to go out and change the narrative on her own. So she's able to help out more organizations. So in this episode, we really don't dig too much into the past. We spend so much time talking about what can we do now and what can we do to set up the future. We're talking about how to assess data, what to do about ticket sales, subscription models, how do we enlarge the market share, AKA create a bigger piece of the pie, and there's just so many little things in here that can be relevant to almost anything you do. How do you set yourself up for the future smartly? And what can we do to help improve classical music and make sure we're not only just still around in the next couple of years, but really thriving? We do get into some of the negatives, the, the boohoos, but 
we we all know that we all we've heard that story. It's time we change this narrative. She comes on here and she she does it for us. So listen to this. If you're a faking fam listener who is trying to build a business, we drop some gems and clues as to businesses you can start that can help support orchestras. And so the the one thing we say in investing is you buy the dip where your conviction is, right? Orchestra's going through a dip. So if you it's have a, conviction, it's a dip. It's, it's a, a dip, dip bro. <laughs> There's blood in the streets, bro. Some of it's ours. But I think there's like, it's real that, you know, there are solutions that exist and this conversation is full of them. If you want to have more content like this that helps your brain whir with ideas on how you can get involved as an entrepreneur in the arts community, subscribe. Subscribe Subscribe to our podcast. We have wonderful guests like Aubrey all the time. Download it. Download our episodes, help our, help us get our do- uh, downloads up on Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And leave us a review because uh, we love, we need your, we need you. We need, we need to hear from you. I'm, I'm, I'm lonely. I'm I know. Scared. It's the only people we talk to are, are the reviews for this podcast. But actually, if you want to speak to us, the best way to do it in between the episodes is our Discord. We're always having conversations. Mm-hmm. We, we love our Discord family. A couple of them just got accepted into schools. A couple of them Shout are switching jobs. Shout out to Travis jobs. and Casey. Hell Shout yeah. Out. Shout out. Shout out. Get those yeah. scholarships. So we, we really do support each other. We look out for each other. It's a fun place to be. Join us on the Discord, the Faking Notes Discord. Links in the description. Also, if you've got some Monet, we mm-hmm. talk a lot about subscription services in this particular episode. We got one ourselves. Join us on the <laughs> Patreon. Subscribe to us. It helps us grow. And uh, we're just we're just trying to get a little better every day, and the Patreon's a big part of that. And lastly, we got a YouTube. You can watch these episodes. So if you love listening to the Faking Notes podcast, continue. If you want to watch it, follow us on YouTube. It's a great place to see what our beautiful faces look like. It's it's all about that (laughs) audio visual experience. Also, uh, plug for the upcoming episode. But without further ado, our next guest, Aubrey Berghauer. Thank you so much for being here on the Faking Notes podcast. Hi, guys. Happy it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we like hop into it, I just wanted to ask you, how are you feeling on this Friday? Are you on the West Coast? I am. San okay. Francisco. Yeah. Shout out. Okay. So this noon afternoon on a Friday, right before Christmas, how are you feeling? You feeling good? Holiday spirit? Yeah, I gotta say, I feel like, I mean, on one hand, I feel tired. I think so many of us do. Like, I think maybe that's just baseline for so many of us. But on the other hand, I've been, um, I'm just gonna wear my heart on my sleeve a little bit. I've just been like, like reflecting at the, on the end of the year. And I've just like, it's just been a year of tremendous personal growth for me. And so I've just been feeling a lot of feelings and very happy about that, which is not anybody who knows me. I'm not normally like an emotional person. And so for me to say I'm feeling my feelings is like, I don't know, y'all. I don't know. This Friday afternoon, apparently that's where I'm going, like right out of the gate on this conversation. <laughs> we love it's the Feeling Notes that. podcast. Yeah, it's the yes, Feeling okay. Notes podcast. There you go. We're all about it here. <laughs> Love it. I resonate with that personally. Um, very busy. And, you know, we artists are no strangers to, to emotions and things like that. But, yeah, it feels like 
this year wasn't as bad as 2020, mm-hmm. but it, it wasn't much better. It was just like it's different. It's different. Like yeah, yeah we went on lockdown. Thank goodness. But it's just like the. I don't know. It's just been like a long, slow burn, I think. So, and I don't mean to be a downer, though, because it really has been in many ways a good year as well. And I think like the juxtaposition of all of that is maybe why I'm just like, I don't know, having this moment of reflection. I don't, I don't know. But um, I'm ready for 2022. I'll say that. I'm like optimistic and looking forward to it. That's wonderful. And it's been quite a, quite a couple years, I will say. And even before this, so just to jump in, you've been really setting the pace for innovation in our lovely little niche field that is classical music. And I remember hearing about you a few years back, uh, mm-hmm. one of our close mutual friends, the, one of the reasons we met through John Hong, love us some John Hong. And he was just like, hey, you need to, to check this person out. She's actually doing the thing. She's making wow. the change. And with California Symphony and doing all these crazy, awesome things. So of course, thank you. Like we need, we yes. need you. You're our only um, hope. You're our only hope. Okay, I'll say that. I always say like we're all in this together. That's for sure. But um, but that's so nice. And yes, total shout out to John. He's just been a real champion and supporter and he's great. So I, that means a lot that he was singing my praises. So I wanted to open up because when we were first really hearing about you with all that success of like growing the subscribers, really turning around a symphony at, at such a young age and leading the cause and getting attention of all the big orchestras. They're all looking in and like, whoa, wait a minute. Profitable. What is What's that? <laughs> whoa, Google's yeah. money. Yeah. Like tried to figure that out. But um, I'm really curious now because you, instead of jumping, let's say the, the ladder, so to speak of, okay, turned around this orchestra, you know, let me move to a new team, turn around this, build this program, build this program. You've gone out and turn it into consulting to be able to help more and more people. That had to have been a really difficult decision, right? To go out on your own, not be directly attached to one single institution. How is that like? Because there's not many models of that out in our field. You're right. I feel like I had to sort of forge a path in that way, um, which, which, but it's not an unusual path in other industries. So to walk it back a little, I was being recruited for other jobs, which was wonderful, of course, and lovely. And what I was finding, though, is that... You know, you have success at an orchestra, which was, I'm so glad we had the success we had at California Symphony. We built that. And then a lot of the calls I was getting were either in the category of, we want you to just wash, rinse, repeat, do it again. And mostly in this category, like we want the results, but we don't want the change that's going to be necessary to get the results. And I found it was just very challenging and, and frustrating, to be honest, that you know, anywhere I'm going to go next, I do want to lead another orchestra someday, hopefully a big one. I believe that this work scales. I'm working with big institutions now, but what I was finding at the time is that I wasn't getting a match in the board, music director, and musicians. And it takes all of that to be aligned with, yes, we want these results and we know we're going to have to change some things to get there. Someday, I again, optimistic, someday I think that will come and that's the orchestra I'm going to go to. But, um, I just wasn't seeing it play out that way then. Now, the good news, a weird silver lining of the pandemic is that it has, it's forced us to tolerate the change. So I'm sure we'll get into that. But um, but to keep on track with the question, seeing that path, you know, it was either, yep, add a zero to the budget, go run that orchestra. But again, some of these frustrations I was feeling, 
um, feeling like I wouldn't be able to be totally successful really. And, you know, side hustle had developed doing the consulting, doing the speaking. And the good part about that is anybody who contacts me, they've already drank the Kool-Aid and they do want to buy what I'm selling, literally want to buy what I'm selling. <laughs> and, um, and so I thought, well, let's just see, maybe, maybe that can be the next chapter for me. And, uh, a goal with that would be that, yes, I get to work with many different institutions, work with more large institutions. That's where I cut my teeth in this field. Again, that's where I want to be again someday, just because I do believe this work scales and, and I can't wait to, to prove that and, and demonstrate that. And then lastly, just being able to see the field from this elevated view, this elevated landscape, is really exactly what I wanted. So I'm happy to say it's played out that way. I'm really glad for that. Um, the pandemic has sort of changed the type of work I'm doing for somewhat. Now it's more sort of back to normal, grow our audiences, help us grow revenue, all those same issues are, are what we're working to solve again. But yeah, that's the story. And I thought, well, let's just do this for a while and let that be the thing for now. And, and someday that match will come along where, like I said, it'll be bored, music director, musicians. And man, when that happens... The world won't even know what to do. Yeah, the world <laughs> I have a question kind of like on this vein. I think that is honestly the only path that I think is available for people uh, of our kind of mindset. We at the Faking Nose podcast, we're like very focused on uh, entrepreneurship and independence and creating our own lanes because the institutions are these big ships with massive holes that just take a long time to change their direction, change their bearing. But we, us tiny speedboats, we can <laughs> duck, dodge, weave it. What, what's the dodgeball reference? Dip, duck. Oh, if you can dodge a wrench or you, you can, can dodge, dodge a ball. A ball. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I, I'm wondering, are you aware of any smaller institutions like uh, the Chicago Sinfonetta in Chicago and like how they are, you know, employing different tactics and, and whether or not uh, larger institutions should uh, adopt some of their tactics? Mm -hmm. I get asked this question a lot. You know, what are the organizations doing it right? I think it's hard. I mean, there are I feel like there are organizations doing some things right, but it's very hard. I, I gotta be honest. I don't see, um, Chicago Symphony comes pretty close of like across the board, they're doing so many great things. So definitely gold star for them. Mm -hmm. Rocco, they used to be River Oaks Chamber Orchestra, but Rocco is what they go by now. I feel like, um, Alicia there has done really great work. They do a lot of forward thinking things, a lot of musician driven, initiatives. So they've been doing things right for a long time, I think. Uh, those are two that come to mind. I serve on the board of Mercury Soul. That's Mason Bates' organization. And we've been going through this whole strategic planning process. And I, I joined the board because I think they are already were doing a lot of things right. And then now, really, this is an organization that's even in the strategic planning process, I, I was not the consultant. I said, no, I want to act as a board member in this. <laughs> yeah, It's been really nice just to, to wear that hat and see that... Um, yeah, there's a whole bunch more good coming there too. So there's a couple that come to mind of, of some smaller organizations that I think are really, really trying to use their nimbleness to their advantage to, to quickly do the, do the innovative work that needs to be done. 
And I, I apologize. That question wasn't as specific as it probably should have been. And I didn't mean for it to come across as a hardball question. The reason why I asked it is because I think, you know, for all the younger listeners who are graduating college, who are listening to this, or they're trying to figure out their next steps in their, in their career, this means there's an opportunity. And I was trying to highlight the opportunity because there aren't many actors in this space that are doing the kind of work that, um, you know, you're kind of like preaching. Mm. And uh, I want to get into that a little bit later, but I, uh, I yield the floor, Mr. Trevor. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good point because at least traditionally, if you wanted to do something different in classical music, a lot of those people left, which is so sad. There are people with great ideas and then they, they look around, they, you know, they spend a few years in acting change. Maybe they start their ensemble and then it's difficult. The money's not there. There's a grind and they just keep hitting walls and they bump into some of these slow moving, uh, unwrenched, dodgeable institutions. Um, but I'm curious too. So we talked about this being able to adapt quickly. And of course, that is a, a big feature and a big talking point of startup culture, which you are in the the hotbed of San Francisco, where it is there. Do you learn from some of these things like rapid ideation and all these other business philosophies? Like what are some San Francisco tips? Like what are you extracting from there that you can uh, disseminate to uh, our audience? Oh, absolutely. I think you totally hit the nail on the head. I think so much of my work it, um, is inspired by other industries and and many of it is Silicon Valley here, and but not just only tech. But what I think is interesting is being called innovative is a wonderful compliment. And I'm really honored when people say that. But what is more true is what you just said, Trevor, ideation, iteration. I would say I am like the queen of iteration. I'm like, let's test, <laughs> measure, let's do it again. I'm all about progress, not perfection, which in many ways is flies in the face of what we're taught as musicians, progress, not perfection, unless you go back to the practice room and then we that's what we do. That is the practice. Mm-hmm. So why don't we take that and make that the way we run our institutions? Because to me, we're not, anytime you do something new to get it right out of the gate, I mean, to continue with the musician analogy, we're not all perfect sight readers 100% of the time, right? No. So, How dare just, you? I That's know. for sure. Yeah. Yes. So, Why are you telling our secrets now? Come on. <laughs> so instead, let's 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 give ourselves permission on the, on the business side of it all to say, no, we are, we're going to try a pilot project. We're going to call it a pilot that gives us sort of that, I don't know, umbrella under which to, um, I don't want to say fail, but to, to not be perfect out of the gate. And that has really been my MO, this idea of, again, test, measure, authenticate, iterate, ideate, and, that is very, very much from outside of our industry, for sure. And then to get a little more specific, absolutely ideas uh, on basically B2C businesses, business to consumer companies, e-commerce companies, that's what we do as organizations. And I think some people kind of you know, shake their head when they hear me talk like this. Well, we don't, we're not, what are we, e-commerce, what? And I'm like... Who's bought a $100 ticket for a symphony orchestra online? That's an e-commerce <laughs> business, and it's quite a high price point. Therefore, we have to deliver a lot to be 
competitive with other forms of entertainment that are at that same price point. Anyways, I'm clearly on the soapbox now, but, um, this <laughs> yes. is your box. No, yes. Like, like we're presenting this box to you. Give the soap. Give the I, soap. Give the soap. All right. I've, I've found my people. Um, so yeah, that's the idea. All of that comes from outside of this industry. And what's so great about that is we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are so many of the issues and challenges that we are trying to solve in classical music that are also being addressed or have already been addressed in these other industries. And so for me, I just to look to not be so insular as an industry, to lift our eyes up, that has been hugely helpful and inspirational to my work. I love how you say that. That's such, that is kind of like the way humans have evolved all technologies throughout history. And the cool thing about the information age is you can have these totally specialized groups that are super different in their approach, but the lessons and the value can be transferable. We didn't have Twitter before, but now like <laughs> we're connected because of Twitter. Like this is happening because of Twitter. And now these ideas are being spread to a larger audience. And I think that's so interesting how you you put it, that tech and are there any other like industries that you're looking at outside, even beyond tech that are influencing your work? I'm curious. Yeah, retail for sure. I think, I mean, again, it has to do with you have a product to sell, we're offering it. Um, so to get specific, uh, let's talk about subscriptions. I mean, yes. uh, in our industry, we t and I get these calls all the time, Aubrey, the subscription model's dying or it's dead. And you know, you look, yeah, I know, ha, ha, ha. Like, but you, you look at the data and you see the trends in classical music and absolutely that trend line goes down for subscriptions over the last 10 years or so. And yet, I'm guessing you're laughing because we look outside of classical music and the subscription model is more prevalent than ever. Right. And so, you know, everything is on subscription. It, and I'm, I'm not just talking like paper. back to tech. Yeah. It's like... Switch fix for clothes or whatever. Like my my razors come in the mail on yep. subscription. My dog's bougie food comes in the mail. Right, and so Facts. and so it, the subscription model is not dead. And so to continue with this example, um, yes. Yeah, so from retail, what's working then? What is working? Well, a couple of things just to show, like my thought process of trying to connect these two. You know, I think okay. Well, one thing, it's monthly recurring revenue. That's a huge difference. That credit card gets charged every month for whatever insert subscription membership we have. Okay, that's a huge difference from how we're doing it right now. So I don't know, I don't know what that would look like for an arts organization, but it's like it's a data point that's working in other industries. So how would that work if we could have some sort of monthly subscription for us? Okay, so that's one example. Another thing I think about with subscriptions is with we all know as consumers, we have to opt out. If I want to end my dog's bougie food being sent to me every month, I have to go online and cancel that myself and I opt out. With the arts, we voluntarily at the end of every season wipe the slate clean and say, hey, do you want to buy your subscription again for the next year? Like offering people a chance to bail. That is a, and I don't mean to say it like so like pedantically and negatively because that worked for our industry for decades. So I understand why we do it. But when I look at retail, I'm like, no, this is a huge difference between the two of us. And so, and the same thing with donations. I mean, many organizations do now have monthly giving programs, but most of the money is the same idea of we wipe the slate clean. Would you like to make your next annual gift? And I just feel like 
I know this is how my mind works. When I take inspiration from other industries, I see these differences. I see what's working elsewhere. And I'm like, okay, how do we test this in an organization and just see if we test it with a small segment of the audience or, a, or test something for, a, again, three-month pilot project. Let's see. We'll gather data, and then we can iterate on that and make it better going forward. So th- there's another example right there is this, this idea of subscriptions. That's a perfect example. And I just want to do a brief explainer of like why subscriptions are great. In general, just as a company, just for the audience who might not know. So like the company I work at now, Tonebase, online music education company, subscription-based. And so what that allows you to do as a company is have predictable income. Yes. Uh, it's steady. It's spaced out because before, if you wanted to go buy, say, Logic 9 or something, you've got to drop $600 all at once to buy a pack of CDs. Uh, CDs, ancient technology, look them up. That's fascinating. Uh, but you'd have to go in and it was all or nothing. And if you just needed it for one project, too bad. You got to go out and try this whole thing. So with the subscription, uh, it's much more predictable income. And so as a business, then you're not always panicking on that immediate next sell. You're bringing people on there. You, you can plan out in the future. If you know you're growing at 5% and you have this kind of steady base and you know you churn a couple users this many months. You can you can predict your growth as opposed to uh, an organization like an orchestra. Like, oh no, we need to sell tickets to this immediately. It's not quite as predictable as with a subscription. You can account for some with some pretty easy calculations. We have this much money. Uh, let's grow this base. We can put on these shows with like reasonable expectations. So while it is annoying to, you know, we get kind of bled dry by subscriptions, but I think what that does lead to is it's better for these companies you're able to have more companies stick around because they can just predictably do the balance. And obviously, who needs that more than than orchestras and arts institutions? Like predictability is not in the dictionary, and and we need it in the dictionary big time. We need it all all caps, all bold. So I appreciate you saying all of that, Trevor. I think I'm known as somebody who's very customer centric, very community centric, but also. I want to make money more than anybody else because we are running a business and the pie can get bigger for all of us. Yeah. And I want more money in all of our pockets on stage, off stage. And so what you're saying, Trevor, is so important to that equation of like, yes, we want to center our customers and create great experiences. And also we want to make more money and subscriptions are, are a piece of that. So thank you for that explainer. I actually had an, another like idea. So like, what if like orchestras adopted, you know, a subscription model like gyms? You know, just make it really hard to unsubscribe. Really expensive. Just, sir, I if you want to unsubscribe, you know, just could you sing the exposition of Pin the Myth? Uh, can you sing the exposition? Eleven, number four. No, I, you I must think play the bassoon. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but see, that, that's so interesting. Is like you know, looking outside of classical music, subscription model, like you said, subscription models have existed, and they are a huge money maker because, like, you don't have to show up. And if you don't give people the chance to opt out, you create all of these these wonderful opportunities, like Trevor said so astutely. So like just know how much money you got coming in. And that that really helps you with your cash flow. Now I'm I'm wondering, have you read any books like Al by Al Reese or uh or Jack Trout or Dan no, Chip Heath? I'm an avid reader, but I'm embarrassed to say right now I have not read. There, there are too many books on planet earth to have been written to have read everything so it's all good I read, are I, these business books i read tons of business books every year I, i'm about to release my annual year-end 
blog mm. post of book reviews for the year. So, okay, Let's so go. I need these names because I'll add them to the 22 reading list. Marketing. Okay, so some of the best marketing books I've ever read are by Al Reese. And one of them is the 22 Immutable uh, Laws of Marketing. And the other one that I'm reading right now is the 22 Immutable Laws of Branding. This feels like right up my alley. Continue. Oh, yeah. No, you're going to, they're a fun read. They're written in the early 2000s. So a lot of the examples. Classics. Okay. Yeah. But a lot of the examples are like Xerox, Toyota, (laughs) Duracell. But in my mind, as I'm reading, I'm extrapolating these examples to, I mean, they have Coke and Pepsi is the, the duality that they really keep coming back to. And I'm like, oh, so you mean like Google, Microsoft, Facebook, the Fang company? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, so it's, it's the, the principles still exist and that's why they're immutable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A little blockchain speech. There's one thing. And the reason why I'm so incredibly excited to have you here, and I want to amplify your megaphone because there is, when it comes to branding, when you have competitors in an ecosystem, when one does better, they all do better because you increase the slice of the pie. You make the table bigger. So I think that by you succeeding at this, by building one symphony to be better, it's going to help everybody else implicitly. So I didn't really have a question there, but that was like something that was popping in my head as you guys were speaking, because I think there's this kind of toxic mentality in classical music where it's like, if somebody else is succeeding, I can't succeed. And I think that's one of the biggest lies. Totally. I think um, there's a real fear of who's going to go first. Which is also opposite of tech. Tech is like, you know, first mover advantage. I mean, you guys know, I see you nodding your heads. Yeah. And so, but we get very, we're so fear-based. I've been there. I know what it's like to be the one at the top of the org chart, the one losing sleep at night or is over, is this going to work or not? So I don't say this like wagging my finger. I, I, the fear is real. The budgets are so lean. There's not a lot of room for... Um, experimentation or failure. But yet, when we have this, going back to this idea of a culture of iteration, somebody's got to go first. Somebody has to. <laughs> so that's how that's how we're going to make progress. Yeah. And like you said, the pie can get bigger for all of us. And I mean, maybe to flip the script and reframe it more positively, the good thing about our industry, in a weird way, the good thing about being insular is that once there is a proof of concept Like I do see these ideas that we're talking about catching on slowly, but it is catching on. I mean, I've been blogging about this for almost six years now and six years ago, everybody was like, what? (laughs) And then now there's a lot more. There's like a real growing, um, I don't know if movement's too strong a word, but a real growing slice of people, at least in our field saying, no, 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 this makes a lot of sense. And in that slice is growing to more and more decision makers becoming a part of that. So Anyways, trying to go back to a positive note, like change is slow, change is hard. Yes, people don't always want to be first. Yes, it's scary. But also, I do see a shift happening in a good way. And that leads me to my, sorry, Trevor, like I actually have a question. Go for it. Oh, let's and do I, it. I need to I'm get ready. that diatribe out. Practical advice, you know, for the listeners here. And, it, and many of them may be struggling with this concept, as I know I did. How would you teach somebody or guide somebody to uh, view their art as a product, like they are providing a product or a service, 
as opposed to fully altruistic art, which it is, but you got to pay your bills. You can't pay your bills with altruism. Like how, how do you help people shape the, their mental model? That's a great question. I think, I mean, you already heard me say, I want to make more money. I want all of us to make more money. So in some ways, this comes very naturally just true to my personality, um, that entrepreneurial spirit we were talking about before. You know, I think a couple things on this. I think one is going back to the idea of reframing. We're taught in music school in some ways, this altruistic way and like that we need, like our art exists because it's inherently valuable. And that's a real disservice to musicians, to your point, Drew, of like, it's not inherently, inherently valuable doesn't pay the bills. So (laughs) I don't buy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. so instead of saying like, you know, we in institutions and individuals don't really say these exact words, but we project this idea of like, you need our art, you need it in your life. And the reality is, I, I, no, I don't think so, because people invest in what they're what they want in their life. And when we say ticket sales are on the decline, and it's an industry that's uh, our labor costs grow every year, like there's a lot of people with their wallet saying, I don't need to in my life. And so instead to flip that, and and this is the advice I give a lot, to come with the attitude of, no, I need you for my art to exist. I need you for my art to exist. That really changes things to, like I said, putting the customer at the center. It is a service. It's a service I'm providing that I want you, I need you to pay for. And I want that. And it's a product I'm selling that goes back to all the e-commerce, retail, all that kind of stuff. That's just a different mentality. And it's not the way we're taught in our very traditional Western European training that we receive. So so I start with that. um, And that helps a lot of organizations as they're trying to think about, you know, the buzzword right now is we want to we want to center our community. We want to be relevant in our community. These are the words I would use instead or maybe in addition to like, no, we need you. We need you. And the more people who believe that like the better and the more we can serve more people, which is really the, then achieving the original mission anyways. So I start there and then to get maybe a little more practical, I was thinking about these immutable principles, even though I haven't read the book, I would say things I tell clients is that was part of your question is I say all the time, marketing is education, right? And so instead of like the typical way we tend to market our art, beloved Brahms, second symphony, blah, 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 and star soloist, virtuosic, whatever. Like, again, that's saying you need this in your life. You need beloved, you need star soloist, you need virtuosity instead of, let me tell you what's interesting about this. Why do we even care about Brahms second symphony? I'm not saying throw out Brahms second symphony. I'm saying like, let's actually tell people something interesting and then they can decide, oh yeah, that is interesting. Maybe I do want to hear that. Maybe I do want that in my life. So marketing is education. And because of the decline in public music education in this country, grown adults, smart grown adults don't know these quote unquote basic things about classical music. And so when we switch our marketing to really be education, that then opens this whole world of content marketing, of just vast amounts of material we have before us that we get to distill and share with people. It's exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting in that way. And I I will say I wrote this whole blog post on content marketing. And what I say is 
you know, we talked about other industries. This is something we have in spades that other industries wish they have, which is interesting information about the product we are selling. We have so much of it that we can tap into and better, um, better share it with others. And so that's an immutable principle. Content uh, marketing is edu- education. Yeah. So anyways, I can go on and on, but those are at least something practical and then something more ethereal of like, we, we need you, not you need our art. I, I love that. And there's, I've like been typing down, I'm like, Oh, like mention this, mention this, because there's just so many like beautiful little jibs and different threads we could, uh, unravel. Um, but that last like sticking point that marketing is education. It's like something, uh, Drew and I on this pod have like talked a bunch about because reading through marketing, Twitter and business Twitter, when they're listing out, you know, how to improve your ads or whatever your Google ad spend. And everyone's saying that now they're like, wait a minute, the best ads are the ads that educate. And we're finding that out ourselves. Drew and I've got these businesses coming up. We're on the, you know, the project of figuring out market fit and market research and all these things and who's the audience. And the big things that surprise us is, and I'm sure with you as well, is we're very aware of the problems, so to speak, or what we've identified as the problems. Then we go out and it turns out a lot of the people we're working with don't even know that the problem is the problem. How can you sell them the solution when they don't even know Know that there's a problem to begin? And so it really, it's something that just sticks into my mind. And I always felt kind of somewhat lost in this business. It's like, okay, I'm good at spreadsheets. I'm, I'm good at this, but I have all this teaching background. Like what usefulness is that in business? And then suddenly now, Business Twitter's all like, hey, education's number one thing in marketing. So I'm like, aha, I figured, <laughs> I found my place. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. Well, and it's so interesting what you said about not everybody even knows what the problem is. I think that's true. And I think that that, when I think about our field as a whole, I keep coming back to, I don't think the pain is great enough yet, which maybe sounds bananas given that here we are, we just at the top of the podcasts were saying like, oh my God, we're so tired and this pandemic and slow burn and all this kind of stuff. But um, it's painful, but in some ways, like maybe not painful enough yet. Like maybe everybody's not like we had the shuttered venues operator grants. We had the PPE loans, you know, these things that were necessary and helped buoy us as an industry, but barely kept us, you know, moving along. Maybe ticket sales haven't declined enough yet. Maybe enough baby boomers, they're still giving. And so we are not feeling that pain just yet enough. I think that, and I'm not wishing for more pain for our industry, believe me, but I just, um, when you're talking about like not knowing the problem, that's a real impetus for change. I always say the silver lining of a crisis is that when you hit rock bottom, you know, you got to do it differently. And so, and I see that sometimes in the clients I work with of like, no, we know, we know, Aubrey, we're there. And so as a whole industry, maybe the pain isn't, just quite great enough yet. I, I don't know. There's actually, have you heard of the, it's not, I'm not sure if it's a maxim or a parable, but it's like mm-hmm. a saying where, you know, there's only one way you can boil a frog, but there are two ways you can do it, right? You can boil the water and then put the frog in and it jumps mm-hmm. right back out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you can just put it in regular like room temperature water and just turn the heat up. Mm. We'd, we'd like to apologize to all our frog listeners out there. Like, we, do not, we do not advocate the, the boiling the legs, frogs. No, bro, come on. For the, for the record. <laughs> them legs, though. You, see, you saw them legs. <laughs> I know you think that's the, the problem. And I agree. Because actually one of my questions was, is like, what amount of pain do you think would be required for institutions to rethink their strategy? Is no shows. Like, nobody coming to a show. 
going to be the, the realization. Because uh, honestly, like it feels like the water's starting to boil because when you look at the audiences of these orchestras that exist in inner cities where people look like me, but the audiences is just a sea of silver. I don't know what it's going to take. Do you have any insight? Yeah, two things are coming to mind. One, in this goal to try to be more positive, like I, there are some organizations, like I said, saying, yeah. yes, this is different. And even the recruiter calls I've gotten recently for some of the open CEO roles, like I'm seeing a difference in the job descriptions than I saw five years ago, four years ago. Mm. So some of this may be performative, okay? Let's just name it. But it's still a step and it's still different language than I was seeing. And these job descriptions are not as cookie cutter. And so I'm like, well, when we're talking about a massive board, many of which are this older generation, very set in their ways, like that does give me some hope. It's progress, not perfection. It's baby steps. But like I I see it happening in real time. Okay. And like I said, someday that match is going to come and I'm like, put me in. So, okay. That's one thing. Now, not as positive. Um, (laughs) uh, Now we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Uh, So I go back to, I say a lot and I have been over the pandemic, like what were the trends pre-pandemic? Declining ticket sales. We know from the League of American Orchestras, ticket sales were on the decline 2.8% a year. National average for orchestras across the country. And so we know what that graph looks like. That's a downward graph. Okay. So many people have said the pandemic is an accelerant of all kinds of trends. Whatever the trend was before, positive, negative, whatever, the pandemic has accelerated that. So I did this exercise earlier in the pandemic, almost a year ago now, um, where I thought, well, what if, what if the pandemic accelerated that ticket sales graph by 10 years? We don't know, is it going to accelerate things by 10 years, five years, 12 years? You know, we don't know. But as an exercise, what does that look like? If we do that, meaning that when we come back sort of now as orchestras and other classical music ensembles are coming back, that would look like a 42% decrease in our audiences. That's almost half. So, and again, this is just a thought exercise that, you know, we don't know, but, but to your point, you know, even coming back now, some of these performances have been very full because there's a spike in demand. People want to come back to live performance. We know, I mean, that's a, that's good for us. We know people want live music in their lives. So great. It goes back to product service. Like that's helpful. But I've also seen performances that, yeah, I would say it probably looks half full, maybe 60% sold. I don't know. And I'm like, that's a problem. So one more, one more uh, data point I want to share on this. So um, just earlier this week, I was reading this report released by the National Center for Arts Research and Data Arts that's out of SMU. And they released a fantastic model of ticket sales projections. So on the same topic I'm just speaking of, they, their model was ticket sales projections based on all kinds of factors. The model included vaccine rates, pricing and sort of other meta factors such as like they used restaurant employment uh, as an indicator of people wanting to go out for example so anyways very smart fantastic model of all of these different data points and, and as you tinker with these different variables what does that do for the projections of ticket sales in our audiences oh and then they combine that with historical actual sales data from 50 plus organizations ranging in budget from a million dollars to, I think, 167 million. So anyways, massive, um, really reliable 
data set. Okay, all of that laying the groundwork. This model showed that in the quote unquote realistic best case scenario, so they're, again, best case scenario within reason, they said that means a national vaccination rate of 67% by the end of 2021 and a drop in COVID cases, okay, asterisk, because we know there's not a drop in COVID cases right now, but they said if that were to happen, ticket sales by the start of 2022, ticket sales would reach 65% of their pre-pandemic levels. Oh, that is- oh. oh that's bad. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this goes to like, how will we know that the pain is great enough? Like, maybe we're not there. Like, it's going to happen in January. It's going to happen this fiscal year. Mm-hmm. Like, if not mm-hmm. this fiscal year, then maybe next fiscal year, if, mm-hmm. if organizations do not take steps to change. And like I said, more and more are saying, yeah, we know we've got to combat these trends. So anyways, two different things. If we, if we don't change it, that's the trend. That's what a fantastic model is telling us right now. And not that that's the end all be all, but yeah. they're pretty smart people there at SMU. So I, I dig it. And then on the other hand, this idea that all of these trends, though, I believe can be reversed. I've seen it. I've lived it. We've done it. I've, I've been a part of an organization that doubled their audience. Average age dropped, quadru- nearly quadrupled the donor base. Like I believe all of this growth is possible. So I don't want to be a negative Nancy. I want to mm-hmm. outline the scenario if we don't change. It's kind of wild, like looking out the landscape. And I think it's true. There's something in that kind of just gets embedded in that mindset of, you know, it's just for the art. And uh, when you go to music school, you're almost exclusive, particularly at a conservatory, you're almost exclusively surrounded by like-minded individuals who love classical music. If you got into it, maybe your parent was a musician or they just happened to be, you know, the one small percentage that like classical music. So there's all these little like odd ways we fall into it. And then when you're learning about music, you're surrounded by other musicians. And the thing I love to do is to talk about music to non-classical musicians. It, it was great practice to realize to talk to you know the real world, so to speak. And then when I return to classical music bubbles, they don't really reach out. We even had two episodes like essential social skills for musicians on this podcast, just talking. You know, how do you talk to other people? You know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> basic and very important things um, because we're speaking different languages. And somewhere in that, one, it's this attachment to the art, this pure altruistic view. And that ruins up your money sense. That ruins your business sense. Uh, and it can have a negative impact on your artistic output. But also just being able to relate to people, which that's what marketing is. That's how you. That's how you get promoted. That's how you find a great partner. That's how you do everything is through relationships and communication. And yet in the arts, you know, networking bad. It's all about, it's all about the art, you know, headshot, bad market, you know, Facebook ads, bad. And it's just, it's like what you said. We don't even have to reinvent anything. We just have to look to our left, look to our right. Why did we buy that iPhone? Because it's sleek Everyone else has one. It makes my life easier. Uh, you know all these other things. And I yet, when it comes to music, in my chat, yeah, like I got to be able to <laughs> like a message. You know, that's a thousand dollars. But um, it, all these other things make sense outside yeah. of our bubble. But within it, it's we kind of get restricted, and we're weighed down by the fact that it somehow existed across hundreds of years, and we were bringing on all of that baggage with us. And there's this assumption, which is incorrect, that 
it has to exist and that it will exist. And like, mm -hmm. as we know- You need our art in your life. It goes right yeah. back to that attitude, which is not correct. I have two questions and I hope you'll allow me this, Trevor. So I want to. I want to get to like have my permission. Uh, it's on the record. Uh, you could yes. ask. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I want to create more more of an actionable space, right? Because like it's what you said. Iterative. You're very iterative. Frederick Douglass said, like, my life. He, I'm paraphrasing. My life didn't start changing until I started praying with my feet. So I'm a big proponent of action. So let's let's imagine. Okay, because previously in this conversation, you said there are like three parties you have to get on the same board, music director, the musicians, and the board. Mm -hmm. Let's say we have them all in a room and let's say the projections that, you know, the study, the model that you referred to before have come to fruition and they're, they're ready to, to just take any ideas, right? I want you, because I sat down for 20 minutes, 25 minutes, just writing down some ideas, some of them from our previous conversation. And I want you to like rate them on a scale from one to 10 as we go through them. 10 being, I'm going to recommend this to these three groups that are ready for ideas. One being, nah, that's trash. Maybe let's, let's rework it. <laughs> All right, okay. This is a fun game. All yeah, right. yeah, okay. So here's a proposal. Increase earned media acquisition by allowing guests to use their phones during the performance and capture moments that strike them, encourage them to use branding tools. Drew, I rate that a 100 on a scale of one to 10. 100. from our conversation. Okay, but yeah, can you explain? This, this is a home run because here we go. Here, oh God, here on the soapbox right now. Okay, Let's so. Let's go. <laughs> um, so this idea that we are, and this is, for everybody listening who may not know, this is really our union contracts that are that are affecting this part of the conversation. So generally speaking, we tell audiences no phones, no video, nothing. Okay. Now that is completely contrary to, I'm guessing we got a lot of Gen X and millennials listening, right? That is completely <laughs> contrary to how we live and experience our lives. Now what's so interesting, okay, at the California Symphony, we did this whole series of focus groups. And even the, the millennials in that focus group, they weren't saying, like a lot of them were fine putting their phone away. So it's not like everybody wants to phone, film the whole thing. And like, this is what like the fear I get, going back to fear from a lot of these other groups, right? Board members, musicians. It's not that people want to be distracting and have their phone up during the whole performance. We know as consumers who live our lives through our devices that like we want to capture that moment. So when, we, when I think of an audience member, and they, they want to pull out their phone and whether they want to film a snippet or take some photos or whatever, like that means they want to capture this moment that we are providing. And so help us. They want to share it with everybody they know on their social networks. I mean, that is the holy grail. <laughs> exactly. And, Just pearls. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so... We in the way we shut that down. I have been to I will not name names, but big major institutions in this country. And the amount of times that we are told to turn off our phone, I, I should start counting. And like it's got to be sure. like put it on your website. Turn yeah. off your phone. Just one time, you're here. 
I mean, it's just so counter to what we want to have happening. And you were talking about marketing books, Drew. Mark Schaefer's The Marketing Rebellion is like my, I think my reigning favorite marketing book right now. And he says in that book, two thirds of a brand's marketing is now not controlled by the brand. That means only Mm. one third of what we do is our media spend, all those things we said, you know, our Facebook ads, whatever. Two thirds is controlled by everybody else. That means word of mouth, that means social media, that means online reviews, you know, whatever. And when we are at our institutions and saying no phones, no video, no nothing, we are amputating an arm or a leg because we are not able to allow that two thirds of marketing that's happening to exist. Like we're, it's like cutting off our cut, killing our marketing budget by two thirds. So I am just a huge proponent one for the feeling that we know if somebody's capturing something, they want to share it. And wow, that means we've achieved our goal in providing this service and experience. And then two, there's the practical marketing side of like, yeah, I want free marketing. I want people to blast it everywhere. Thank you very much. All right. hundred out of one scale and here. Before going to the next one, and like not only is it free marketing, which is amazing, they're literally paying to go to that event. They paid to do your marketing. They're paying I mean, to yeah, market for you. Thank you. It's they're crazy. paying us to market for us. Thank it's you. A DAO. Yeah. It's, it's a doubt. It's they're it's they're contributed in. And, and what's crazy about this one too is we don't even have to look at some other industry. We just literally mm-hmm. look at other music. I know that Harry Styles had a super successful tour, not because I ever saw a single ad, not because I ever even knew he was on a tour. It's because that was all over TikTok. And the crazy part was, I don't think any of those videos had the music, had the songs. It was him talking to the audience and that became a thing. And then suddenly every video on TikTok is Harry Styles reading the fans' signs and it's these beautiful little moments and those go viral. And so it's they're not even recording the music and releasing it. They're just having this awesome engagement. People see him talking to the fans. They want to go to the concert. They want to get in the front row. So he'll read their sign and engage with him. I couldn't, you know, may, maybe name like one song of his, but the fact that I know he's on tour and that <laughs> he's getting an insane amount of, of great press yeah. for reverse free. He's there paying for that. It's mm-hmm. it's astounding. We have to. I got to say one more, th- one more thing on this and then we can move on. But um, at the California Symphony, we ended up in like so like major kudos to the musicians for going along with this. We said in all of our materials, phones on and silent. OK, that was the line we used phones on and silent. OK, so basically it's permissible. We'd really tiptoe around the union agreement, but like, okay, here's how, here's how audience members actually behaved. Cause this goes back to the fear and like, who's going to be distracting and all of that. So here's mm-hmm. what happened. People show up at the concert, orchestra's warming up on stage. They turn around, they take their selfie with the orchestra in the background, posted or not, whatever they decide to do. And then maybe a few times, like during the concert, they're taking a little short video and it's not like somebody's standing and blocking everybody else behind them. Like, no, like, People know how to behave. And that's what we saw is people knew how to behave. And that was our test of like, what if we just say phones on and silent? Okay. And it was, it was fine. Excuse me, sir, sir. Can you put that, can you put that away? Oh yeah. No, it, the shame. They're like. Uh, and, then, and then you get embarrassed yeah. and everybody's looking at you with reproachful looks. I mean, it's just a terrible cultural move. It's a terrible cultural move. Yeah. That is the opposite. Shaming is, I mean, let's just say this, even though it feels like stating the opposite. Shaming is the opposite of creating a welcoming and inclusive environment. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> That's our lesson for today. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm writing that in my notes. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for I could read a book on that. 
I'm imagining a a just from this the combination of like enabling people to do this and then the story you told about Harry Styles tour Trevor think about like combining that in an imaginary scenario where marketing is education and you have a member of the orchestra a spokesman maybe it's the person who runs the social media maybe maybe every orchestra should have a social media influencer for that orchestra that tells the stories that talks about the music and imagine right before Brahms one opens up he opens it up with reading one of Brahms's letters that he didn't burn or yeah. like a lovely <laughs> or, or just Snapchat. describing a reading an old news article by Robert Schumann talking about Brahms and then maybe talking about how Brahms actually felt because Schumann was like saying, Hey, this guy's the shit. But Brahms himself was like, I'm 40 and I've thrown away dozens of manuscripts of my first symphony. And this is the best I could do after 20 plus years. Here it is. Right. And then that's like, people are recording that. And then that's education. That's history. That's intrigue. Absolutely. I mean, my mind also goes to how do we make content out of that and put that online so that it helps drive sales in advance too. Like that's exactly, mm-hmm. that's content marketing. That's education. That's fascinating. I but think they don't even have to do that. They could literally, re- the people, like you said, can record that little soliloquy or that little skit and post it. And then they don't even have to pay somebody to do Adobe after effects right. to make yeah. a beautiful right. video yeah, you, to yeah. start. 100%. Right? So I wanted to highlight that that scenario because I think that's what I was pitching to Carnegie Hall is like starting a series for them. I love so it. Like, yeah. but they, they, kind of, they didn't laugh me out of the building, but they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll be at such. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so here's idea number two, okay? Create a loyalty program that incentivizes generating earned media provided that they use hashtags and they tag correctly. And you can disclose all of these things beforehand. You can get free ticket raffles, discounts on merch, free beverages during concerts. What do you think? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to give that a seven. Okay. I think because what I, my mind is going to, yes, I see how that can be helpful. I've been, I mean, we can go on a whole tangent of influencer marketing, which sort of feels um, in the same vein as this. And like, it's all in that same idea of like, how do we get other people to do the marketing for us? So I feel like there's good in that. That's why I give it a seven. To be honest and blunt, my mind went through, oh my God, who on staff is going to have time to manage that? (laughs) So, which is not a good answer. (laughs) Oh, to to moderate the content to make sure it's safe Mm -hmm. and stuff. I mean, you can't, it's the internet. Or or if we're going to really push a hashtag, I mean, to push a hashtag successfully, I think is very challenging too. So then, but if you do, then you need somebody to go through that in order to like, mm-hmm. if there are benefits for using it, then somebody Don't has, they to, have like somebody has to like a huge it. administration staff or something. What are they doing? <laughs> well, yes and no. So I'll, I will say this though, no matter how big the budget, it always feels lean. It mm-hmm. always feels like there's not enough people. Even when the staff is 75 or hundred people, it always feels mm-hmm. like there's not enough. I will not get on this soapbox right now, but like, I think <laughs> we should restructure the staff so that there are, I think there are more if, some efficiencies or ways we can redraw lines and responsibilities to help with that. But anyways, mm-hmm. short version is it always feels lean. It always feels like we don't have enough admin staff. Mm-hmm. I'm not excusing. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to say don't do that idea because we don't mm-hmm. have time because that's like the opposite of test, measure, experiment, iterate. 
But okay, so I give it a seven of it's strong. I want to figure it out. How do how do we execute and, it? And what the way I was conceiving it as well is maybe that is a company faking fam that one could build and provide as a service to orchestrate yeah, content that. aggregation and management and and sort of that. Because like yeah. Facebook is not gonna do that, Instagram's not gonna do that, but it doesn't mean it isn't a valuable service. Yeah, yeah. Trevor? Go for it. Next question. I'm ready. Okay, next one. Okay. Implementing sophisticated sound amplification systems that allow people to enjoy the show, but doesn't require them to stifle their coughs or movements during the performance. Uh, I feel like we're back in the 1800s still. Um, yeah. I mean, 10 out of 10, 11 out of 10. I mean, turn it up to 11. (laughs) (laughs) Piano is still piano. Yes, exactly. I think, I mean, okay, let's, now I'm okay. I'm going to try to taper my excitement and try to think both sides of this. Yes, yes. On one hand, yeah, I'm like super excited. I don't want to hear coughing. Okay, so I mean, raise your hand if you go to a performance and you hope you hear coughing. Nobody. Oh, okay. So <laughs> to have the music amplified so that that's not an issue, great. That's fine. Um, I would also say not the amplification part of it, but the environment part of it is more true to the origins of classical music anyways, that this is an entertainment experience that we can, that we don't have to sit silent and still the whole time. That is, we know, we know that is more true to the origins of music. This whole idea of sit still, don't disturb, don't move, that's very 20th century. So getting away from that is what made me so excited. Mm-hmm. Okay. So to taper that on the other side, mm-hmm. I will say the fact that we can have 80 people on stage, 90 people on stage, even a chamber ensemble or a quartet, like four people on stage, whatever the number is, live music performed at the highest levels professional musicians deliver is so second to none. Like nothing, nothing yeah. compares. Yeah. Not that amplification destroys that, but I'm just trying to go back to like, wow, the core, the, the core product Thank goodness for us. Our core product is so, so strong. So that's the other side of my brain. Can I throw one back at you though? Please. Yeah. This. And I'll rate it. What I really like, what I get more, maybe more excited about than amplification is IMAG. The, so the visual element. So like, you know, you go to a, a rock concert and it's the giant screens on the side, or you go to a sports game and it's the jumbotron. Like to me, if we, watch, if we watch a broadcast, and so many ensembles got great at this during the pandemic, like we see the fingers moving, we see the bow moving, we, mm-hmm. you know, like that's interesting. And then to be able to see, again, see the artists do what they do at the highest level at a close up way that you don't normally get to see, no matter how much you paid for your ticket, you really don't get that close up view. So to me, I get very excited by the visual element and then paired with that audio delivery. 10 out of 10. It's like Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. 10 out of 10. Yes. Yes, they do it that way at the Hollywood Bowl. You're right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ten out of ten out of ten, and this is definitely one like I have a, a ton of thoughts and like preferences for because when you bring someone to their first classical music concert or they're not as familiar with it, besides maybe they're a little concerned about the elitist <clears throat> stuffiness, like oh, can I cough? And you gotta no, don't clap here. Sorry, I think it's dumb. I think we should clap. Sorry, but um, it's what you know. You gotta get in like the laundry list. If you cough, they'll kill you. Uh, (laughs) um, the thing i noticed when i first went to like a real orchestra concert i was already in music school freshman go up to the kennedy center this is going to be great they're playing shahrazad they're playing the ride of spring and i and i go down and i sit there and 
it just sounds so much softer. There's not much ba- there's not much bass. And here I am listening, you know, National Symphony Orchestra. It's the Kennedy Center. And all I can think about was, wow, it just sounds different listening on my uh, CDs, again, uh, beautiful ancient, ancient technology, CDs um, of like Leonard Bernstein's recording where it's been fully mixed, fully mastered, and it just felt weaker. And that's something I've just noticed when I bring um, people who aren't as familiar with classical music into the space is it's softer. They're not quite as used to it. And so uh, a couple things. They would have absolutely used amplification during their time. They were using the best 100%. technology. Beethoven, they were using what they had. Uh, okay, acoustic panels. Obviously, they were trying to improve the sounds of their halls and create an experience for the best people. That's why they constructed it. They were working on the physics of the spaces and acoustics. They were figuring out if they had had this, I would be stunned if they weren't using it uh, at all. That's I'd a be great shocked. argument. Yeah. I follow that argument. Yeah, thank you. And, and uh, one thing too, like the Hollywood Bowl, I guess I just wrote a little note. I was just like, spend money, spend money on this. So the thing I've noticed too, when I've gone to other orchestra concerts and when I look at the sound systems, it's like a stereo pair, like kind of slung somewhere. Like I'm like, I'm like, I have this in my like closet. You can like, spend money. If you go to a Red Rocks concert, it's, there's a billion speakers and you know, they bring out the best sound mi- mixing engineers and they engineered this. And yes. I, I know it's difficult because we're dealing with different, it's a different type of music. It's a different experience. We're not trying to blast people's uh, face up, but the technology has come so far that you can give a beautiful spatialized experience to anyone. And so I know we love spending money on renovating David Geffen. We mm. love trying to fix it. We love spending money, but if, if instead of dropping five hundred million to improve the acoustics an extra three percent, what if you spent a million a year and you brought in the best producer in the world, and you set them at the mix board, and you said, "Hey, like make this beautiful in every seat," uh, with enough mics, with enough the tech we have now, they could probably do it. And I love how you mentioned the visual element, but even with the sound, I think instead of just simply like, hey, let's make it a little louder for these seats, is with the tech we have today, it's readily available. You could really create a beautiful experience that doesn't detract at all. It can just actually enhance the overall Mm. experience, the overall sound, overcome maybe some of the difficulties of that particular instrument or their location in said hall and curate curate the sound i think it's just lost instead of oh we're going to amplify this it's like no we can curate this experience it'll allow the players to play softer they might not have to project as much in that moment and you can get something more intimate and when you mention the visuals i mean that that's just something uh, i'm uh, obsessed with is that moving it away from just a concert and sound okay let me go listen to some recording live not interesting but when you bring in visuals even simplest ones, suddenly you're creating an experience. And that's what people pay money for now. That's what they talk about. It's not like, hey, I went to this like sports thing, you know, just the team won. Like they go there, they pay money for what they could have better seats on at, at home on the TV for free, much better seats. They can get much closer, but they want to see the Jumbotron. They want the halftime show. They want $16 cheap nachos. Uh, yes. Like they want the whole shebang and to see it with the crowd and experience is what. Uh, we're heading towards so yes oh my gosh okay yes I have to like continue on that theme because what you said is so correct it's the experience it's and so this now 
We talked about product, we talked about service, but experience. That's so critical because, you know, we talk about all this and we talk about spending the money and what if we spent a million bucks a year on great audio and curating that? Okay, well, this get, I get back to like the business side of it all. It's like ticket sales are never going to pay for that. So what matters then is to create this experience that people say, I need this in my life. Okay. So now we're growing our audience. Let's say we're selling more tickets. This experience is so great because we've created a communal experience that then starts setting us up for the donation ask later. And so that hmm. to me, like all of, we haven't really talked a lot about fundraising, which is fine, but like what's coming to my mind is I'm, I'm not telling the full truth. If I say like, we do all this and we make all this investment and people, people come and we fill our houses and then we balance the budget. That's not true. Ticket sales will never pay for all of it. I don't, I do not think streaming is something to be monetized. I think streaming is the gateway, just the same sports analogy. We could watch it at home and we do so that we want to pay for it to come live. Like that to me is the, is the progression. And then eventually we've developed such a community, such a service that when it is time to ask for that donation, people say, I get it. I'm in, I am on mm. that bandwagon and I am in. So just to kind of complete the, the revenue and patron journey of it all. Well, I, I wanted to qualify what Trevor said too, is because yeah, we're not bringing in $500 million worth of ticket revenue, but like maybe the money that is, invested by donors can be better spent to actually increase the the user experience because i'm wondering how many people are flying from across the world to go to david geffen hall because like that's why they're flying to new york but it could be the reason right why why not why not people wanting to travel in a car on route 66 from new mexico i don't know if it goes to route Sure. But you you get what I'm saying. Drive across the country to go get this experience. Why not? It's not there yet, but it could be. And I think the sort of thing we're envisioning, like you go to the movie theaters and get a much better audio experience. The one thing that maybe I've learned as a YouTuber and content creator, humans process sound much faster than sight. And if you are trying to start a new YouTube channel, the key advice that I give everybody and that a lot of brilliant people give is invest in your audio equipment before you invest in your video equipment because people are more likely to click off of a YouTube video if the audio is bad, but the, or if the audio is good, but the video is bad. Interesting. But not vice versa. If the audio is bad, they're out. So why not extrapolate this to an orchestral setting and invest in the audio? I yeah, think yeah. it's it's much more important than we're realizing. Yeah, I, I agree. I guess I, I'll play devil's advocate just a little and then maybe we, but I, typically when I am on the soapbox, I'm saying we need to stop tinkering with the product so much and focus on this experience that we just arrived at. Not to say we couldn't improve it. I'm totally listening to everything you guys are saying on the audio and yep, I'm, I'm buying into all this. So it's not to say that's not going to help and not improve, but our audio is already very it's already good. good. Yeah. That's, our, yeah. that's the thing we have yeah. invested in so much and everybody has trained their whole lives for and then they get one of these jobs. And so, yes, could we improve the audio? Yeah, like I said, I'm like totally like believing everything you're saying and like, yep, I get it, I get it, I drink that Kool-Aid. But- Diminishing returns. Improve our product by 10% versus improve the experience by 50%. So, I, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I would, as a, like with the consulting hat on, I would say, stop tinkering with the product. Not that it can't get better, but 
instead focus on this other thing where the delta of what we can do is so much greater. That's my devil's advocate response. In a perfect world, we get to do it all. And, and the virtuous cycle of it is the more we are doing these things, the more we are growing our audience, the more we are growing our relevance in the community, and then therefore our donor base, then we do have money to put back into these other things. Mm, so maybe it's like a priority order of yeah. how like, mentally I would tackle it. But um, I agree. Anyways. I agree. Yeah. No, Absolutely. thank you. Thank 100%. you for that. This is all a nuanced conversation. And I think a lot of people, they believe that they have the the panacea, but yeah, the order matters. Order of operation matters. Okay. Next one. What do you think about this one's super simple and short. Put a QR code uh, with program notes at the front of the theater or at the entrance and stop making program notes and wasting paper. Oh, I could say so much on program notes. Yeah, I mean, I'll totally give that. I'll give that a nine out of 10. I think that's a great idea. Um, um, there are not a lot of ways we can save money. Well, stop printing a zillion programs is a way. They're not, they're not a lot of those that we have available to us. Not a lot. Of, we're pretty lean, as I said before. So, okay, stop printing a million programs. Great. Or print fewer programs. Sure. Maybe some people do want to hold it in their hand of all ages. I've heard that response from all ages of people. Some people want books, not Kindle, you know, so fine. Maybe but we then just. they're on the <laughs> ground. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. But, maybe, but I'm just saying maybe it's not binary. Yeah. Maybe we get to, yeah. maybe we get to save 70% of our printing costs. Great. Sign me up. So, okay. There's that. Um, but yeah. And more and more because of the pandemic, I've been to a lot of concerts recently where it is this is basically what you're describing. Here's the, here's the URL or here's the QR code to scan. So that's all fine. Then it goes back to, I want a good user experience. Cause sometimes I've had a little trouble on these, like, like the mobile friendliness is not totally there. What? Okay. So we got to work that stuff out. Yeah. Um, I also think though, in addition, so here's another one to throw back. I, um, I was talking about Mercury Soul at the top. Something they do well is the way they project program notes during a piece. And so it's mm. part of this very high production value. Like anyways, high production value is what they do. And so it's part of the presentation. And so I've always thought that was very interesting. Of yeah. This is the point you need to know. This is the, Point of information you need to know at this point in time of the piece and um, the way they project those notes is has been interesting and that's better it's an experience yeah. instead of just reading and ignoring what's going on in the symphony while well, i'm like what was what was beethoven that, doing and that's what i thought between it? reading yeah. reading seemed to be like the i'm bored i have to like occupy myself which is a shame like i don't even know if they're reading into it's just like, uh oh, new music came up, and then suddenly everyone's like, suddenly a scholar. Yeah, well, the way we write those notes has to change too. That's it goes oh, right geez. back. To like, can we please stop writing program notes. Like everybody has a music degree. Like that is not yeah. that oh. is not who we're speaking to. But anyways, but yes, this idea of like, can we cut the paper, cut the book? Because also, here's a very salty comment: the same people who are saying, "I want my book," and when the new music comes on, I'm going to read the program book, are the same people saying those people with their phones out are are they're bored and they're not listening and they've got their phone and it's like, um, hello, hello, yeah, you're reading the program, <laughs> book. The program book because it's the same thing, just a different so, response. But anyways, um, like I said, that's um, me getting pretty salty on a Friday afternoon over here. So nah, I got some fries here for you. So yeah, let's <laughs> bring it even, over. Even right before this call, I had just 15 minutes before, like sent out an email of here's what we want out of talking points when you're speaking, just like the program, the thing I'm like, keep it brief, keep it personal to you, like natural, like bullet point, you don't have to necessarily write it out. But I thought the key thing was, I think musicians should start talking to people. It's the, it seems to be the only like industry where 
where there's 80 people, not just even like one artist on stage or the band, you got seven people up there. There's like 80 people on stage and there's this invisible barrier and like no one talks to the audience. No one comes backstage. No one's doing that. It's like creepy almost. It's like, it feels like a zoo or some weird exhibit uh, to where where you like witness art, but like don't feed them. Um, like it's, I, I don't know. And so it's, there's just something so personal back to like Harry Styles, TikTok. You feel a connection to him. He's in an, he's in an auditorium of a 50,000 people multiple nights in a row. And somehow you feel more connected to him in that moment because you're, you're hearing him speak. It's coming from him. And I just don't know why we can occasionally before this piece. Okay. Here's, you know, principal Chellis is going to go through and talk about this and just say something. And when they say it, Please, I, like in my in my note, I was like, you know, help the audience. Like, either they need to connect to you, or what are you saying? Why does it? Why do they need to hear what you're saying? Like, does it does it make them feel connected to the piece? Does it I'm make them feel connected to yeah. you? And all these things, not like. And then here's the motive. Okay, listen for the motive. And then the key is B flat. I'm like, I'm like, do not talk about keys unless it is like the only defining feature that be like. Don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> Please, I beg of you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. 10 out of 10. I mean, I, 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 yes, I'm a big fan of speaking from the stage. I think in speaking in plain English, you say motive and half the audience or more does not know what that word means, but instead of, let me play these four notes or this theme for you. Instant. Okay. Instant. You know, like, so how yeah. How does it make me feel? You know? <laughs> I love you know, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. Love it. Mm. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. So uh, just two more. So first one is buy ads on popular podcasts, utilize Facebook ads and Google ads instead of investing in radio ads. Yes. Every job I've had since 2012 and all the way to today with consulting clients, cut your print. If you're still doing print, some of them oh are. Oh my God, they are? Cut print and cut Whoa. your radio. Oh, I yeah. didn't even want to include print because I was like, there's no way. Some, no. <laughs> some still are so but radio also radio is right is absolutely on the heels of that just it does not deliver so then when i would say so facebook 100 percent, google 100 percent. these are the top two channels for every organization advertising anywhere that's not just classical music that's all i mean you guys know it's all industries those two for sure for podcasts i would say show me the stats show me the stats what is the conversion rate that i would go right back to the data um but yeah amazing uh and then Hire a digital media division that oversees the production of edutainment content that appeals to kids and younger audiences. 100 out of 10. 100 out of 10. Okay. So that is an, when I talked, I said briefly earlier, I think we should restructure our staffs. I think there's a different way to do it. That's the team I want. I so badly think that we need like this. Yeah. Like you said, media content education team instead of we put education in the corner somewhere and they're supposed to like reach communities like i don't even really understand always it's in the dimly lit like there's a flickering even in um you know a certain big name orchestra in a very big city the education room like it was like a horror movie the light was flickering the walls are yellow and i'm like oh this is oh but we need to renovate the hall Okay. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. And also, why is it like I, this gets back into the siloed nature of our organizations? Why is it like a team's job to educate or a team's job to mm. do something in the community where it's like, shouldn't that not be like 
kind of part of what all all of us do here. Yeah. So yes, um, but and, but the idea that there is a team that yes, this media education content team, and that really, I go back to my marketing patron journey speak. I'm like, that's our acquisition team. That is how we are getting these new buyers in the door. Then there's another team that becomes the loyalty team, the retention team. How do we keep them coming Top back? Of it's a whole different set of marketing principles. And but yes, that a hundred out of ten, Drew. Yeah. Well, you survived the uh, the inaugural. I don't even know what to call it, but that's just like a rapid fire rating system. Thank you yeah. for playing. Oh, uh, fine. I love that did you have any other like ideas top of mind that you've been discussing with I don't want to take your your thunder or your product but like I want to get your ideas out in front of as many people as possible because mm-hmm. the more people that are talking about this the more likely they'll be implemented so is there anything else you'd like to add well, I will say I touched on data. Like you just mentioned podcast ads and I'm like, show, yeah. me, show me the stats, show me the data, which yeah. I don't know, maybe everybody listening says, yeah, that feels very intuitive, but um, we tend to not really operate with data. I'm painting with a very broad brush because some mm-hmm. organizations are better than others, but um, I'm not giving away any secret sauce. It's just to say like, we just tend to not be so data driven. And even just the other day, I was working with a current client of mine and they, I had asked them to pull some stats from their database and- mm-hmm. They, they were saying, like they had, I was asking, you know, what's your first time buyer retention rate? And so I instructed them on how to pull those reports. And so they did it, sent it to me and they were like, this feels very low. And I'm like, I'm not trying to hate on that organization. It was like, they weren't, they hadn't looked at that number before. Yeah. Then they said, Ooh, that feels really low. And I'm like, So so maybe it's not right was what they were. And I was like, it is right. Like that's your number and that's now your baseline. And now we get to grow and and improve. And now we have something we've identified something to work on. But, um, and like I said, I'm not trying to hate on them, but it was just this idea of like the data wasn't even looked at therefore. And then when it wasn't the rosiest number, it was, Ooh, I don't think that's right. Like, and it's like, it is right. We've got to trust our data. We've got to use our data. Yeah. So anyways, like I said, there's no secret sauce in that, but I would say almost as a number one thing, I feel like I'm constantly working on with my clients is like, we don't know until we run the report. Like then we have a baseline and we can, we can work from that. Yeah. Starting place. So. It's, it's the shark tank. Like, oh, that like number seems off. And then suddenly zooms in on Lori and Mark and they're like, uh, oh, commercial. <laughs> like just, oh man. Oh, this, this, this pitch is going <laughs> south real fast. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's fascinating. And I bet that's something that, of course, comes from I don't even know if it's like our generation in in then being in proximity of all these startups because, you know, it's data, 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 data. And in this day and age, we have more access to it than ever before. It is very easy to ascertain a ton of data, almost too much. And then like now the new frontier is, well, what do you do with it? Like, how do you analyze it? How do you right. get the right numbers? You are totally right. Yeah. Step one is like having this more data-driven culture, but you're right. As a whole, like there's so much, sometimes it's, I have seen occasionally the other end of the spectrum, as you were describing Trevor, where it's just like this unquenchable thirst for data, which is like, okay, simmer down because you can't have total data overload at some point. So I would say maybe to add a second thing that I am constantly saying to the organizations I work with is 
what's the question? Start with a question. Um, then you can work reverse engineer that. How do I gather the data that I need to answer that question? So um, versus I want everything. Tell me all the numbers, you know. <laughs> Sometimes the board gets on that track of like, I've been there in those board meetings where you start presenting data and then all they want is more and more and more. And it's like, okay, somebody's job is not to run reports all day long. So yeah, yeah. start with a question. Then we can then we can work on how to answer that question, pulling the data. And it's neat to learn these from the business side because like most classical musicians, my full-blown training and experience was always leading towards you're going to plan some nonprofit, nonprofit this, or you're going to be, you know, your sole proprietor, all this. And then now like working for a business, a startup, starting up my own LLCs, working with others. And suddenly it's like, wait a minute, I don't, we don't know any of this stuff. I thought we were just supposed to like go get donors, <laughs> you know, and then run print ads. And like, now we're looking at data because other than some either initial investors, oh, we have to like make money off of this. Wow, this is crazy. What I what I love, at least at Tonebase and like Concertize and all these other ventures we're working on with Drew at Coda Labs for uh, blockchain ticketing is so much of it is data focused and not just like what you said, just to raw like, you hit me in the face with data, 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 but how do we assess this? What are we gonna learn? Getting that information from people, running user surveys, doing interviews, hard data, soft data, has directly changed what we do and prevented hunches that we we were we were all dead set. Oh yeah, that's the problem. And then after a couple surveys, reading the numbers, wait a minute, had we not checked on that, we'd have been going down the wrong path for years. And it yeah. saved us. The data saved us. Yeah, I agree. At the California Symphony, we had a, a rule. A reason to try something new has got to be beyond like I have a hunch or a feeling. So then what do we do? Do we is there is there a report we can pull, a survey we can run, a, a whatever, a focus group or something that, that then gives us fodder for no, that hunch is not right, or yeah, that hunch might be right. How do we then goes right back to the top? How do we test it and and see what what we learn from that? So I love it. I've been so blown away by this conversation, Aubrey, we got to bring you back. I'm yeah. here for it, man. We so, thank bring you. Back. This is really fun. Um, my last question um, for you before I, I yield the, the, the floor to my co-host is what are some tools? Let's, let's say, let's say you're working with a brand new organization that you're not familiar with. Right. And they're like, can you 100 percent increase our audience retention in the next 24 months? <laughs> What's what sort of like research tools or methods are your first go tos and like how do you go about uh, accumulating the data? Hmm. I would say the first is what we have in house already. Really on the heels of what we were just saying, I look at the CRM. There's a lot that CRM? we have a lot, uh, customer relationship management software. So our databases. Okay. okay. There's a lot that we have that we don't always know how to harness. And so that's an easy-ish first stop because we there's no data collection. It's already been done. It's, we have so much transactional data. We can look at who are our first-timers, what's our first-time retention rate, what's our new subscriber renewal rate, You know all these things that not every organization is looking at. There's one. I also am a big fan of Google Analytics. There's so much talk about a hunch versus not so much of what's done on the website is done so much based on quote unquote intuition and it's bad intuition because 
goes right back to we are so we know our product so well we know classical music so well and and then it's funny i have multiple organizations now that fit this and the california symphony was the same way I asked the question, going back to asking a question, you know, what is the percentage of website traffic that is brand new? I don't mean brand new first time buyers. I mean, brand new first time to your organization.org. And it's often two thirds first time visitors. And this goes back to, we got to change the words we use. We got to change the user experience. If they're hitting their website for the first time, a flashing donate button on the homepage is not the right move. Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah. And so it just really changes. Anyways, it's all, anyways, it's on the Google Analytics. It's all there. So I would say that we have so much available to us already. To add one more, when it is time to go out to seek data, almost always I recommend UX research of some sort over a survey when I, when we can, because a survey tends to have response bias. Only the Mm -hmm. most engaged people are generally answering the survey. So then great. We're hearing from our donors and whoever, and longtime subscribers when that's not necessarily who we're trying to design for. So um, I tend to like user experience research in more of a qualitative research kind of way and just having those conversations and, and wow, I've just doing that type of research and data gathering has changed so much of what you heard me say today has come from that. It's just completely changed the way I view the work we have ahead of us. Thank you. That's wonderful. And thanks again. I mean, it's been awesome. We could sit here for hours. Uh, yes. But the data shows they're they're not they probably won't like that. So we'll we'll split it up. We'll we'll, we'll split it up. But me <laughs> to stop yeah. talking. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no. My very last thing. Uh, and and then we will uh, let you be free. One of the things that stuck out in my mind, I think it was Angela Beeching. I think she mentioned this specifically when working with musicians. We're creative people. We're working in the creative arts. We do all these amazingly creative things. But then the moment business happens, suddenly creative brain comes off. Suddenly we're just fumbling around doing like uninspired things, lame website, like boring email, boring program notes, which is stunning because our job is being creative. Uh, And we just, that part of the brain just turns off somehow when we get outside of our comfort zone. And so I'm wondering from you, just a few things, is that how we, we've talked some of these, yeah, very practical solutions uh, of things we can kind of do now, what to look up for the future, looking into other fields. You may be particularly unique things that like classical music is particularly well set up to like education um, that can move us forward. And looking ahead, this is the last question. We're going in towards the future. Like, where do you kind of see us in 10 years? Like, if we implement some of these ideas, how can we get to the positive vision of classical music in 10 years? Oh, these are great questions. Oh, gosh. Um, well, the first part of your question, this having creativity and these non-sexy elements of the job, I think that goes right back to why we tinker with the product too much. That is, in many, by many measures, the more fun thing to do. So many of us, even on the administrative side of this business, we we like talking about the music. We like talking about the product. We like to, audiophiles like talking about the amplification. <laughs> like that's that's sexy. That can be a lot more fun and lot and a lot more creative. And I sound like a broken record sometimes when I go into organizations and I'm like, "But what does your Google Analytics say?" And it's like, fast. <laughs> but but we have to because that is running a business and yeah. 
I don't know what the answer is, except to say that it all matters. And usually when you start seeing dollar signs, that's a pretty good incentive, boring or sexy or not, you know, wherever it falls, like we're trying to do this so that we, we make more money, but really what that means is we are more relevant in more people's lives. And so, um, I don't know. That's my response to that. Yeah. Some of this work is not sexy and, and that's just, I think it's part of running a business. So there's that. The second part of what you were asking about, you know, what does the future look like? Well, I, I think there's a couple different scenarios. You know, we've talked about the doom and gloom. Scenario one, the trends that existed pre-pandemic are not going to reverse themselves. We're not just going to see, poof, audiences are running back in droves when the trend pre-pandemic was that that wasn't <laughs> happening. So scenario one is that things don't really change. Declining audiences, fewer subscribers, aging donors at the top of the pyramid. We know what that future looks like. We know. The other scenario is that we say, wait, to keep doing things the same way, that is the definition of insanity. You keep doing the same thing for different results, right? So we say instead, we are going, we know we are going to take steps to change the old way of doing things and run these organizations like a 2022 business to consumer company with the customer we serve at the center of our work because that is who is funding our work with their ticket purchases, with their donations. That is who we are here to serve. And when we do that, we say, you know, whether it's musicians, board, or the music director, those three key, you know, groups of people I keep mentioning, you know, when we say that, we say we're not looking backward. We can, be, we can be proud of our past. I know there's a lot we have to address in our field, but we can say that and simultaneously say, but we are not looking backward. We are looking forward. Say looking forward means we know we have work to do if we're going to do it differently. But wow, is building a future possible where we are relevant, where we want people to want to take a snippet video with their phones and blast it to everybody we know, because that means they loved what we were doing mm. so much. They want to capture it. It means our audience and our talent is more colorful. It means that we mean something to a broader swath of our communities, which means we serve more total people, which is delivering our mission better. And at the end of the day, when we are doing all that and more relevant and making more money, all of that goes back to fund the things we do want to do, those media projects, commissions, different education programs, all of that goes right back to the pie getting bigger for all of us. That is the future that is totally achievable. I believe it. I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, before we let you go, Aubrey, how we want to lay down the purple and gold carpet for you. So like, where can people get in touch with you? Where can they hire you? Where can they, what, what do you want to shine a spotlight on that you're working on right now? Well, that's so nice of you. AubreyBergauer.com. That's the website at Aubrey Bergauer uh, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, where else? All, Twitter. I'm on all these channels. Um, I will say, since you gave me the spotlight here, I just, I just was accepted into this LinkedIn creator accelerator program. Ooh. So they're like giving this like funding and training for better content on LinkedIn. So anyways, anybody, apparently I'm going to like up my game there. So um, anybody who wants to connect there is great. But anyways, any of those channels is, is awesome. I'd love to see you. All my blog writings are on my website. Again, AubreyBergauer.com. So yeah, thank you for letting me self-promote a little here. Oh, then oh, absolutely. You, you've given us so much. Yeah. Thank you. Aubrey, this is amazing, inspiring. I'm like so pumped and optimistic about the future. And I'm most excited that you're going to be a big part of it. So thanks again for coming through on the podcast. 
Oh, you guys are so fun and so smart. This was just, it was a blast. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Till next time. Till next time. <laughs>